As Amy said, our The More You Know segment of worship is designed to provide information about the history and cultural context of the scripture lesson to give some additional background so that we might better understand what's going on in the passage. Today, as she mentioned, I'm going to focus on the two distinct groups of people who are mentioned in the text. On the one hand, we have the tax collectors and sinners coming near to listen to Jesus, and on the other, the Pharisees and the scribes who are grumbling because Jesus associates with the likes of those people. If you were here on Wednesday night, Russ provided us with a timeline of the history of the people of Israel. As I was preparing for today, I wished I had taken notes, <laughs> or at least paid better attention. Russ talked about how the Jewish people were subjugated at different times by the Egyptians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And in fact, throughout their history, the Israelites enjoyed only relatively brief periods of self-determination. What is important for us to realize this morning is that they managed during all of this time to hold tenaciously to their belief in a covenant with God and to maintain a national and religious identity even as a conquered people. This was possible because they surrounded themselves with an impenetrable wall of law and custom within which they attempted to live in cultural isolation. In this way, for the most part, they returned, retained their own values and practices rather than assimilating to whatever the dominant culture happened to be. Israel's success in living within that impenetrable wall of law and custom is owed largely to the scribes. They were the scholars and teachers of Israel. Beginning at the time of the exile, whose job it was to explain the written law through a developing and growing oral tradition. I think it's somewhat comparable to our Constitution. We have the Constitution, and then we have the constitutional scholars and the Supreme Court justices who interpret what the Constitution says and are supposed to decide cases accordingly. The scribes were the learned, educated, biblical interpreters, the interpreters of the Jewish law, and their interpretations gradually became an oral tradition, which was only later written down in the Mishnah during the third century. The Jews believed that God's whole will was revealed in the Torah. But how were they to deal 
with this unchanging law in an ever-changing world. Enter the Pharisees, who appeared during the intertestamental period, probably three or four hundred years before Jesus came on the scene. Their answer was to adapt and modify the law, to make it workable so that it could fit new conditions and experiences. Because of their willingness to modernize the law, they became the recognized religious leaders of Israel. Josephus, a first century historian, described the Pharisees as a sect of the Jews who appear more religious than others and who seem to interpret the laws more accurately. The Pharisees honestly tried to adjust to changing times, to find answers to new problems in the old law. They developed a system of 613 additional laws, 365 negative commands and 248 positive ones. With regard to keeping the Sabbath day holy, for instance, they listed 39 types of labor that were not allowed. Just for the preparation of bread on the Sabbath, they created laws regarding sowing, plowing, reaping, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, and baking. They tried to build a fence around the law. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy is just one example. And you do that by observing these countless laws about cooking, traveling, building, writing, and even making fires on the Sabbath. Jesus throughout his ministry was clearly in opposition to the scribes and Pharisees. In today's scripture passage, they grumble about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Elsewhere, the Pharisees ascribe Jesus' power to heal, not to God, but to the prince of demons. We are told that they even plot to kill Jesus. Jesus, for his part, warned the disciples against the evil teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers, not very complimentary, and asked, how can you who are evil say anything good? Jesus likened them to evil plants doomed to be rooted up. He said they were unable to read the signs of the times and accused them of being murderers of the prophets. Why all this animosity? Well, unfortunately, for the scribes and the Pharisees, gradually the outward observance of these many rules they had developed became a source of pride and religious arrogance. 
they became more concerned with the outward display of strict adherence to the law rather than aspiring to righteousness in their hearts. Their form of religion became critical and judgmental and void of mercy and forgiveness and love. And thus, it was unacceptable to Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, they asked the disciples why he eats with tax gatherers and sinners. And Jesus himself responds, because I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The irony, of course, is that the scribes and the Pharisees who think themselves righteous are among the most in need of a change of heart. So who were the tax collectors and sinners who came to Jesus? The tax gatherers were despised by the entire Jewish community, hated because they were Jews who worked collecting taxes for the Romans in order to collect taxes efficiently and cheaply, the Romans hired local people for an agreed-upon sum, and whatever the taxman could take in above that sum, he was allowed to keep as a commission. Obviously, this led to abuse, since most people didn't know what they owed in taxes and were dependent on the tax gatherer to tell them. Many tax collectors became wealthy men by abusing the system. And there were lots of taxes in Jesus' day. An income tax, only 1%, that wouldn't be too bad. A grain tax, a road tax, a tax to cross bridges, a tax on pack animals and carts, even a tax to enter certain towns and harbors. There were a number of different tax collectors responsible for these various taxes, and they were all universally despised. The Jews objected to the very taxes themselves because of their belief that God alone was king and no mortal ruler deserved their royalty, loyalty. There is a special disdain for tax collectors who got rich working for Rome at the expense of the Jewish community. In fact, by Jewish law, a tax gatherer was barred from the synagogue. He was considered unclean, and he was classed together with robbers and murderers. The sinners referred to in this passage were apparently not people like you and me who succeeded in hiding their sin and keeping it secret. They were, in fact, recognized sinners. Prostitutes, adulterers, maybe a few thieves and robbers. These are some of the people who formed Jesus' entourage 
and who listened to his teaching. Outcast from their own community, we can imagine that they found acceptance, compassion, and love in the company of Jesus. You probably remember when the WWJD wristbands were popular. What would Jesus do? I always thought it would be more interesting and intriguing to have a WWWJHO wristband. With whom would Jesus hang out? <laughs> who are the people who would be eager for his teaching? Who would be invited to sit at his table? Who would be most in need of his compassionate gaze? And the wristband could serve as a reminder to us to expand our circle of friends and acquaintances. Because if you're like me, you mostly hang out with people a lot like yourselves, from similar educational backgrounds, the same socioeconomic group, and people who perhaps share some of your interests and activities. I think the question for us is, if we are to be like Jesus, who else should be included in our circle? We are called to expand our circle and to include people who need to know Jesus as much as we do. To expand our circle, that is, to include everyone. May it be so. Thank you, Dan. I'm always struck with this history, biblical history, that it sounds like we're talking about current day, doesn't it? We've read today two parables in a series of really three lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the one that we didn't read, but you'd likely know pretty well, the lost son. You probably know that as the parable of the prodigal son, but when we read it in this series of parables, it might be helpful to think of it, of, think of it as the son that was lost, lost primarily to consequences of his own poor choices. But you will remember how that story ends, just like the first two. That which was lost is found, and the father throws a party because apparently finding things brings out the joy in all of us, especially God. I can lose my keys like a champ. On more than one occasion, I have left my wallet in the grocery cart only to get a call from Harris Teeter before I even realize it's missing, saying they have found my wallet. And there's always great rejoicing over that one. Then there was that time in Cuba that I momentarily lost my passport and a full-blown panic set in. That's when Rosemarie Burton pulled out the prayer to St. Anthony to find it. And ever since that day, I have been known to call upon him when things are lost. As much as I love traveling to Cuba, I always want to come home. So I was happy. Great rejoicing when I found the passport. 
What I really think is that about the time I turned to St. Anthony, you do know it, don't you? St. Anthony, St. Anthony, turn around, something's lost and can't be found. You will find that thing. You just wait. Now, I've become a little bit convinced that by the time I turn to St. Anthony, I'm really getting serious then about looking. But who am I to question the power of prayer? Now, I'm making it sound like I'm a complete goof who can't keep up with her stuff, and sometimes that is true. But I am also known to be the finder of things with a household of people that are not good lookers. There was that time that one college son called home, I kid you not, and said, Mom, I need you to help me find my keys. And we found them. I was two hours away on the phone, but we found them. It's a series of good questions. Then there was the other son who had lost a suit. A suit. How do you lose a suit? He had searched everywhere. We found it. I found it. Me in Charlotte. He in Greenville, South Carolina. So I'm not a complete goof. I can find stuff too. But I think we all may have experienced from time to time the complete and utter joy of finding that misplaced daytimer that has your whole life in it. Or worse, you've lost your beloved smartphone. I'm seeing nods of understanding and commiseration among you. The keys, oh, the keys. There's great rejoicing on heaven and in earth when keys that once were lost are suddenly found. And you know they have devices now and apps to download to help us find things. That's awesome for helping find your keys, but when you need your phone to find your phone, that's another problem altogether. But it is an indicator of how much we lose stuff and how desperate we are to find all the lost things And let's not get started about the joy that comes when you lose and then find your two-year-old in the Costco or your five-year-old in the Knights baseball stadium. Have I gotten you in touch with all your fears and desperation and anxieties over all the things you have lost or misplaced? What I hope, though, is to trigger in you today the sense of relief and joy that comes when any of these lost things are found. Because that's what struck me in today's gospel lesson from Luke. When that one sheep is found, the shepherd lays it across his shoulders and rejoices. And that's not enough. After he gets home, he calls all of his friends and his neighbors to share the joy together about this one found sheep. And that woman, God love her, I know her, I am her, turning on all the lights, moving all the furniture, lifting all the cushions and opening all the drawers until that precious coin is found. She has bills to pay and food to put on the table. And that coin likely means the difference in life and death. And when she finds it, she's not happy all by herself. And she doesn't beat herself up for one minute for having lost it in the first place. She just gathers her friends and her neighbors to share the joy. If we keep reading in Luke's telling, we would have come across the massive party that the father threw for the son 
that had been lost to him. And when the son returned home, there was no yelling or lecturing or guilt or shame. Remember that, parents? Just unbridled joy at finding relationship again. So it was joy that struck me in the parables today. There's a book entitled The Book of Joy with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, written by Douglas Abrams. In that book, he says, Discovering more joy does not, I'm sorry to say, save us from the inevitability of hardship and heartbreak. In fact, we may cry more easily, but we will laugh more easily too. Perhaps we are just more alive with joy. Yet as we discover more joy, we can face suffering in a way that ennobles rather than embitters. We have hardship without becoming hard. We have heartbreak without being broken. That's what joy can do for us. Barbara Brown Taylor describes the experience of joy as almost irreverent. She writes, Joy has never had very much to do with what's going on in the world at the time. This is what makes joy different from happiness or pleasure or fun. All of those things depend on positive conditions. The only condition for joy is the presence of God, which means that joy can erupt in a, a depressed economy, and joy can erupt in the middle of war or in an intensive care waiting room. Joy is a gift to be received whenever it is found. The shepherd would have more sheep to go astray. As a matter of fact, likely a lot of what the shepherd's job entailed was finding the ones that got away. The woman, like many women needing to money for her family, likely spent the rest of her days rummaging for any lost change that she could find that would put more food on her table or buy shoes for her children. And that prodigal, well... Maybe he had changed for good, but a parent's worry and heartache never ends. And you know as well as I that that boy likely got lost a few more times before he found his way. And now the father had the bitter older brother with which to contend. But my point is life is full of lost things and it is our task to search for them. And when we find them, we should rejoice. And not alone either. We should call together our friends and our neighbors too. But I'm not just talking about finding your keys and your phone. Let's dig just a little bit deeper. What about when you've lost your courage? When you live in fear and resist taking risks? As the line goes in the benediction that you've sometimes heard Russ share from William Sloan Coffin, may God give you grace to risk something big for something good. When you've lost your courage, but then find it, even in the tiniest amounts, to do that hard thing or say that hard thing that you're afraid to say, I hope you rejoice. Call your neighbors and friends and have them rejoice with you. 
You found an ounce of courage when you've been so afraid. And an ounce of courage should bring you great joy. What about when you've lost your self-esteem? When you think so little of yourself that you live in shame and guilt, believing that you're not enough, and then in one moment that is a glimmer of light, you see yourself as God sees you, full of potential and goodness. It's as if you're sitting on the lap of the black maid from the movie, The Help, and she is speaking directly to you. You is kind. You is smart. You is important. Perhaps you could rejoice in a Kate Bowler blessing on this subject. Blessed are we then who have been excluded, shunned, or forgotten, for there is one who knows us and loves us and walks among us. We know that we are not alone. Our God delights to be with us and has moved heaven and earth just to be where we are. Blessed are we who belong here with God and who makes space for others to sit with us, who practice radical belonging and hospitality because we know what it's like to be locked out. May you rejoice when you find belonging. What about when you've lost relationship and then you find a way to reconnect, even if it's not like it used to be, but you are no longer estranged Let there be rejoicing over even that small, tiniest reconnection. What about when you've lost health and then slowly but surely make your way on the road to recovery and you think you will never get there and there are ten steps back for every one step forward. Let there be rejoicing over even the tiniest step toward health. What about when you've lost hope, which is so easy to do, and yet we can't help it. Even in our worst despair, something will happen that we catch a glimpse of hope, and we're afraid of it because she's disappointed us before. But there she sits, just waiting to be believed. Rejoice in that moment, for surely hopelessness will return for a time because this is the life we live in the ups and downs, the mountains and the valleys, the sorrows and the joys. I think the text today has just reminded me to not forget to rejoice along the way. Or as Anne Lamott puts it, joy is always a surprise and often a decision. Joy is portable. Joy is a habit, and these days it can be a radical act. Whatever is lost for you, may you find it. Search high and low until you find it. And when you find it, Call me. I just want to rejoice with you. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray together.
Today marks a day in our country when so much was lost. 9-11 marks a day of immeasurable loss. Loss of life, loss of loves, loss of security, loss of trust, loss of a sense of freedom. We are forever marked by this tragedy, O oh God. So help us find, in the midst of our grief and fear, help us to find hope and help us to find safety, help us to find comfort, Help us to find courage that may, we might live in joy even today. Amen.